It would be so helpful to have your Bibles still open. So Acts chapter 12, we would continue in our series today. And if it's helpful, there's also some points on the back of the news, so please make use of those as they are, uh, if they're helpful to you. But right now, let's, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Almighty Lord, please transform us through your Word by the power of your Spirit, for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. If uh, someone were to ask me how would I sum up the gospel in as few words as possible, I would simply respond, Jesus is Lord. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. Many people were crucified. Some, such as Lazarus, were even raised. But the reason why Jesus' death and resurrection have sent a shockwave throughout history, why they have an effect, is ultimately because of who he is. Jesus is Lord. That's the message we have witnessed in Acts, being propelled out by the power of the Spirit. But it's also the very claim in the book of Acts that's on the line. Is this true? Now, on the surface, if we're honest and can take a step back for a moment, the evidence actually appears pretty mixed. On one hand, the church is growing. The spirit is moving. People are being healed. People, even the most surprising people, are responding to the news that Jesus is Lord. Earlier in chapter 11, Luke says that in response to hearing the news about the Lord Jesus, people believed and turned to the Lord. And they must have truly, really believed it, for not only did they proclaim it, but they also put their entire lives on the line and gave of everything they had. They did so not only in imitation of Jesus or in response to all that Jesus had done, but in recognition that all that they had is his. Because he's the Lord of everything. It's the exact type of response you'd expect of people who are utterly convinced that Jesus is the all-powerful Lord of Lords. Yet, on the other hand, if Jesus is Lord, the one who is in charge, holds all authority, has defeated sin and death, why then are some of his followers being persecuted or even killed? So how does this stack up? The Christian life results in praise to God, but the Christian life also results in persecution. And of course, Jesus warned of both. Uh, Remember, previously, the very reason why some Christians found themselves in Antioch was because they were scattered there by persecution. And as chapter 12 opens, back in Jerusalem now with a show of power, it seems to be not the power of a crucified and risen king who brings life, but a political show of power that results in death. On the surface, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. Perhaps you know that tension in your own life. You might think, I'm signed up, I'm convinced, I'll even profess that Jesus is Lord. But sometimes, in the experience or in the witness of hardship, of pain, of evil it can kind of feel like Jesus isn't Lord. Perhaps 
you're right in the thick of something now. And it feels like that to you. Perhaps you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've actually got that question too. Well, I think one of the reasons that Luke recorded this account of Peter's great escape, sandwiched between James's death and Herod's demise, is to show us who really is in charge and why he is worthy of our trust. So we see the strategy of Herod is trumped by the sovereignty of God. So we see that play out in three ways. Persecution versus prayer, captivity versus freedom, and exaltation versus judgment. So first, Herod's way of persecution versus God's way of prayer. So verse 1. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, whilst that name of Herod might ring a bell, might sound really familiar, it's really important to note that there's actually a few Herods mentioned in the New Testament. So the first Herod we hear about is the one who tried to kill baby Jesus by putting to death all those infants in Bethlehem. The second Herod, so his son, so Herod Antipas, was the one who ordered John the Baptist's head be brought forward on a platter. And then Herod number three, so this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, he is the one who kills James. So, fun family. His granddad wanted to kill Jesus in case he was a rival king. His uncle tried to get rid of the prophet he pointed to the king, and he is now killing those who profess Jesus as king, okay? And, and Herod is likely doing this, not probably because he's got some sort of specific beef with Christians, but that this is really a politically convenient opportunity. Sure, he wouldn't have liked the claim that Jesus is some rival lord. Herod was, in fact, the last Herodian to be called king of the Jews. But note in verse 3, it's when the killing of James is met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. When he sees their reaction, he realises onto something that will serve his agenda which was to be applauded and keep a firm grip on his power. This really is like textbook strategy for tyrants because one of the best ways to maintain power amidst a sea of people vying for control is to put a spotlight on a shared enemy, which particularly works when it's a minority group like the Christians were here. So he goes after the Christian influences of the day. Herod thinks he's onto a good thing. The problem is, practical problem for Herod, is that because it's the time of Passover, he can't really do anything with Peter yet until this holy time, this festival, is finished. But no worries for, for Herod, he puts Peter under arrest. It's hard to imagine, in light of everything that happened on the back of James's death, the anguish that other Christians in Jerusalem must have been feeling at this time when Peter was put under arrest. I mean, this situation looks really dire. From a personal perspective, they may have had a real and reasonable fear for their own lives and that of their loved ones. From a missional 
perspective, they might have been asking all sorts of questions. James had already been killed. They might have been wondering, what is the future of the church? What will it mean if another key Christian leader like Peter is lost? And of course, for many in the world today, this account isn't just a distant bit of history. This isn't just theoretical. But this is the type of threat and reality that many people live with every single day. Yet, no, there is no hint that they're planning a breakout. On the surface, it seems really obvious who has the power in this situation. Yet we see what we should do in the face of trial when it seems like all hope is lost. What do they do? They get praying. Whilst Herod is taking charge, these believers are trusting God. So verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The word earnestly here, it's an incredible word, it's actually the same word that's used of Jesus, of Jesus when he was praying in the garden on the night before he goes to his death. You might recall he was earnestly praying, he had sweat that was like blood. If there's any other way, Father, take this cup, but he earnestly prays, your will be done. I think in the face of trial, in the face of challenge, we can panic and we can have all sorts of really unhelpful and destructive responses. We can just stop praying. We can cut back our expectations. We could pray about less things in our life or our world. We can even blame ourselves or blame others or blame God. We could even start losing our trust in God. But when we find ourselves tested and we pray, we are responding to the invitation from God to delight that it is only in Him that we find our full and final refuge and hope. That's what we're expressing when we pray. In response to to evil seemingly taking charge when there's no alternate strategy of their own, they respond in prayer. Now, does this mean that we should never make plans or we should never take action, we should never strategize or something like that? No, of course not. But it does show us that whatever our response, it should never be less than prayer. The times when we're at a loss about what to do, of course, they're not an exception of when we had a call on God. They're a window. They're a window to show us that God is, in fact, our constant need. Prayer helps us let go from taking charge and rest in trusting Him. In the Open Doors 2023 watch list, which lists all the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. North Korea right now ranks right at the top of that list. And in the watch list that Open Doors published, they included a quote from one Christian in North Korea. And this Christian, in the face of such brutal hostility, said this. 
Step by step, I realize how the Holy Spirit leads my life. I decide to put all things onto God's hands. You know, I really love in this account that Luke doesn't actually tell us the content of the people's prayers. Only they were earnestly praying for James. I think it's really so extraordinary that as God invites us into prayer over and over again, he even gives us his spirit to help us with that. We, we respond to that and do that not only as an expression of our trust, but actually we do so as one of the key ways we participate in God's mission. And also in God's kindness, it's one of the means by which he is at work in the world, through our prayers. I think that's, that's extraordinary, that's amazing. See, whilst Herod expresses his rule with an outward display of power, here the Lord of the universe expresses his rule through even the weak prayers of his people. That's the first way we see God's sovereignty trump Herod's strategy. Second, Herod's way of captivity versus God's way of freedom. So let's look from verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. So I really want you to picture this. So not only are there guards standing by, not only are there other guards at the gate, but Peter, here he is, bound in chains and sleeping between two soldiers. Sounds really comfortable, doesn't it? It actually almost sounds like some sort of elaborate setup for an escape artist to, to conquer. But the, the too long, didn't read point here is there is no escape. Or so there's no escape by human means. Herod isn't taking any chances. He might have heard how poorly things have gone before. Yet as uncomfortable as that must have been, no, Peter's actually asleep. Peter's actually asleep until the angel strikes his side, wakes him up, tells him to move, releases the chains and opens the gates. Verse 10. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. He just walked straight out. It sounds a bit like one of those heist movies when the escape vehicle is able to travel down the road because someone has hacked the grid and all the lights go green. Or when people escape an evil king by the parting of a sea. Or when the way for life is opened up, thrown open wide, because of the one who hangs on the cross and rises to life. See, Herod's strategy is for captivity, but God's way is for freedom. To Peter, it seems too good to be true. Um, I have to say that I usually have the most mundane and boring dreams in the world, usually some sort of continuation of something I've been working on. But every now and then, I will have a moment in a dream when something slightly, just tiny, just slightly weird happens. And it's in that moment, in that dream, that I catch myself out and I realise, aha, good try, Adam. This isn't real. This is just a dream. And then I wake up. But Peter, you know, Peter had had the exact opposite experience. Because what was happening in real life 
seems so out of this world, so beyond his comprehension of what was possible, that he assumes that it was a dream until he realises that it's not. So it's not until he finds himself out of prison, down the street, and standing alone, that he realises that this is real. I do wish there was some CCTV footage that captures this moment when, when he realises that actually this is real and he's out, that'd be amazing. But know that Peter's not the only one who can't believe his eyes. Because when he arrived at Mary's house, so John's mum, where everyone is in the thick of prayer, presumably praying for him, they can't believe it either. In fact, did you know, Rhoda is so excited that she leaves Peter standing at the door and when she tells everyone else, they think she's out of her mind. Now, I think when we hear that, we can be quick to think, wow, these people are such of little faith. They've just been praying for this, but now they can't believe what's the answer to their prayer. But remember, presumably they had prayed just as earnestly for James. See, what I think is incredible is not their apparent disbelief, that they had kept on praying despite everything that had happened. Why was Peter saved and James not? I don't know. But faithfulness isn't based on our understanding of every part of God's plan, but trusting with good evidence that God is working out his plans for good. And I don't want to suggest that that is easy for a moment. I've been really reminded in recent weeks, catching up and praying with some people who are really facing significant trials, really significant challenges, that we really shouldn't approach prayer like it's some sort of scarce commodity. But nor should we approach God like he has limited power. Even amidst the captors of our world, we can pray with confidence because God has freed us from the ultimate captivity of sin and death. That's why he's worthy of our trust. Third way we see God's sovereignty trump Herod's strategy. So Herod's way of exaltation versus God's way of judgment. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. It's a very subtle part, isn't it? Now, if we just park how evil Herod has been, when we hear this, just these few verses, we can almost immediately think, wow, isn't this a bit harsh? Wasn't this a bit quick? After all, didn't Herod, he didn't say anything. The people are the ones who mistook him uh, for God. But it's important to remember that it seems that in many ways, this is exactly what Herod was after. Herod escalated persecution in order to gain the praise of the people. But now as he's praised by people as God, he faces judgment from the true Lord. The historian Josephus actually records this event and in Josephus's account of this event he writes, Herod put on a robe made of silver throughout of altogether wonderful weaving. 
The silver shone and glittered wonderfully when the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed on it. It's quite a coat. He did not rebuke them or repudiate their impious flattery. He was seized by a severe pain in his belly. He was carried quickly into the palace where he suffered continuously for five days and he died. Herod's desire to be praised as Lord was interrupted with a divine reality check. It's actually a reminder that actually all evil will face judgment one day. At the beginning of chapter 12, I don't think this is how you'd expect it to end. You know, Herod was in the ascendancy, he looked to be at the peak of his power and of his authority. But in the words of William Taylor, the chapter begins with James beheaded, Peter imprisoned, the church in turmoil and Herod triumphant. But the chapter ends with Peter freed, Herod dead, the church rejoicing and the word triumphant. The lofty were brought low, the humble were lifted high. Herod's persecution did not dissuade God's people from prayer. Herod's locking up did not impede God's setting free. Herod's exaltation of himself did not stop God from being judged. Herod's strategy would not thwart God's sovereignty. Verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You know, why are some people rescued immediately whilst others are not? Why are some prayers answered, yet others lie in wait? Why are some evil forces brought to justice right now, whilst others seemingly go unpunished? I don't know. But what I do know is that this is not how the story ends. As one commentator puts it, the Lord is king. Over and over again, he thwarts the scheming of the enemy, overturns the tyrants, exalts his son, and gives joyful increase to the followers of the Lamb. Now, I think we can be tempted when we look at the beginning of chapter 12 to think that it begins with a failure and then it ends with success. But of course, that's not the whole picture. In fact, the very first Christian scholar, so Clement of Alexandria, tells us a bit more about the background and tells us the man who was actually responsible for the denunciation of James actually ended up being so compelled by James's testimony about Jesus before Herod that not only did he become a Christian at the trial but he was in fact led away to be executed along with James himself. He went from persecutor to persecuted in the blink of an eye. Jesus is Lord. That means we can rest assured that what God has done, 
he invites us to participate in today, trusting that he will absolutely bring it to completion. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that Jesus is Lord of all and that absolutely nothing will thwart your plans from being brought to completion. We thank you so much that in your kindness and even amidst great trial, that you invite us to participate in your plans. Lord, please help us in the power of your spirit. We thank you so much for the example of those who face trial, those known to us and those further afield. Today we especially pray for anyone here, anyone in the world who faces trial and persecution right now. Lord, would you please strengthen them? Would you please comfort them? And please help us to be a people who are increasingly shaped by earnest prayer, that we might delight in who you are, your plans unfolding, and that is yet to come. Lord, please help us to trust and delight in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.